Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. This episode is a big Q&A where we explore an area of marketing through a leading industry expert. I'm your host, Will Francis, and today I'll be talking to Mark Evans about his work heading up marketing and digital at one of Britain's most recognized brands, Direct Line Insurance. We'll talk specifically about a brand reboot fronted by iconic animated characters launched just as the COVID-19 pandemic hit and how he navigated that. Mark is the Managing Director of Marketing and Digital at Direct Line Group. Having joined in 2012, he's overseen the transformation of their brands and marketing approach, including the multi-award winning reinvigoration of the much-loved Direct Line brand. Mark himself has been awarded numerous industry accolades in recognition of his marketing and leadership talents, so we've got lots to learn from him today. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Will. Thank you very much. Lovely intro. Thank you. Pleasure to have you on. You know, and like I say, I think uh, um, my job is to download all that you know <laughs> in the time that we have. I'll do my best. <laughs> so, um, okay, th- this campaign, just let's set the scene a little bit. This campaign uh, that launched in March 2020, um, just tell me a little bit about that and um, what you what you aim to achieve, how it was different from what you'd done before and exactly what it looked like for people on the receiving end. Yeah, sure. And I'm very conscious you'll have some people listening in who aren't from the UK. So I'll just try and give a bit of context. Direct, Direct Line is the leading uh, motor insurance brand and one of the leading general insurance brands in the UK. Very long history, used to be a very famous brand, went through the wilderness, had a reboot in 2014 with the Winston Wolf Fixer campaign, which has won Can Lion and IPA Golds and all sorts, um, and uh, was really an odd one in that it had uh, a gangster, the Winston Wolf character from Pulp Fiction, as the metaphor for an intent for an insurance company, which is odd because insurance is a low trust sector, um, but actually his fix-it credentials were a, a great metaphor for our intent, in fact. So yeah, so when we came through to 2020, uh, we, we changed it all again. And I think there were a lot of people who were quite quizzical as to why the heck would we have changed something that was still working so well. And I guess it comes largely, and I'll describe it a bit about what the campaign was. It comes largely from the fact that we did have one strategic wrinkle in our campaign approach, um, but also we had a belief that better was possible. The strategic wrinkle was that we would uh, use Harvey Keitel's Winston Wolf to declare our brilliance, uh, as to why our insurance is better and worth worth buying and so on. Uh, but we never had a comparator. We couldn't say that we were better than something else. And so if you like the sort of the, the there was a bit missing in the strategic setup, which uh, it didn't impact the effectiveness of the advertising, but that was what led us to the other thought of, well, maybe there's something even better available. Uh, and also, you know, we'd used uh, Harvey Keitel for quite a while um, and we couldn't use him in all media. Uh, but we didn't have to change, but we chose to because the philosophical point is never believing that you've got the best, that there is always better available. And, and I suppose there's a strong linkage, for example, to uh, competitive sport. If you take like a Steve Redgrave, who's won Olympics in five goals, goals in five Olympics, if you think about the great sporting teams that have endured, they're also quite humble and register that you've never sussed it, you've never cracked it. Uh, and so what we did is we did uh, really go right back to the drawing board with the existing agency. We didn't do a pitch. It was with with Saatchi and Saatchi uh, and went in search of better. And better came in the guise of 
this notion of that we're so good at fixing problems that we're putting superheroes out of business. It's a very, very simple thought. As ever, took a long time to get there, but it's now a truly epic campaign where we're beating Donatello, obviously um, from the Ninja Turtles and Robocop that many people will know, uh, and also Bumblebee, one of the Transformers, to the chase in terms of fixing a customer problem. And what that allows us to do in a slightly hyperbolic way is to demonstrate that we're better than something else. Okay, it's not a direct reference, but people get the hyperbole and therefore it has a lot of reward and comedy and humour. And so it was really, as much as anything, that appetite to go again register that there's always better available. And, and that exploration process, once again, we're quite fortunate, really delivered the, the gold. And so um, that must have been quite kind of exciting to find something that felt right with uh, with Saatchi and, and, and start to launch that. But then this quite scary global event happened that the, this pandemic hit. Was there ever a point where you thought about holding back the campaign or was it was it too late to do that and you just had to go go for it uh well yes um we we were we were committed actually just you just made it made a point uh, which i would flag around excitement uh you know you're very lucky if once in your career you're sat in a room with an advertising agency and you just know that there's something brilliant in before you and you get the hairs standing up on the back of your neck i think that often happens no times at all for a marketer. To have that once is really fortunate. To have that twice on the same brand with the same agency, I think is pretty, pretty rare. Um, normally you wouldn't even reconsider uh, a campaign that's working extremely well without a change in the agency or a change in the leadership or the change in the market context. So two, two hair on the back of the neck moments is really, really, um, I'm very, very blessed. And, and it, it does lead me to think that, you know, a lot of great advertising development is instinct based. It is what gets you excited. So I just wanted to labor that that point, because I think for people thinking, uh, what's the point of this podcast? I would really strongly advocate that if it gets you excited, there's something in it. Follow your your passions, follow your instincts. Yeah, I'd like to dig into that, actually, before we then get on to the logistics of it, because I think that is one of the great mysteries still of marketing is creativity. And then, of course, in recent years, there's this idea that through you know through digital channels like data will do all the decision making for you um but you know we know that creativity is still the driving force behind great memorable campaigns right yeah 100% and i think we you know i've used the expression of being away with the digital fairies i mean that's not to say that digital and data aren't incredibly important but they're not at the expense of the core idea which signifies what a brand stands for in the world. And I think that it's that human touch in combination with digital and data which makes the day. And I'll, I'll use a very, very simple example, um, which is that, you know, if, if you're, what your brand stands for as carried through your advertising is, is so easy to get for consumers that it's also so easy to get for your staff, then I, I believe it's very possible to get to this virtuous circle where every day your staff need, show, know how they need to show up for your customers and the brand lives through every single touch point. And I, you, you know, that, that connection doesn't even get started when you're talking about data and digital. You know, your, your, your staff on the end of phones or, or WhatsApps or, or web chats, they, yeah, they, they don't get that. They don't see that. But, but visceral, exciting, challenging advertising just gets people going and, and gets staff going, gets customers going. And so, yeah, great, great creative will, will live forever. 
Um, and, and of course, you know, let's not forget that TV is a long way from being dead as a medium. And it's had a bit of a renaissance through the pandemic, but it is still the way to hit a mass audience with a big idea to drive a momentum for, for, for a brand. And, you know, in many ways, the more things change, the more they stay the same. True. And, you know, like you say, it's the sort of, it's the art and the science and it's the data and the insight together with great creativity. And so I suppose you, you made me curious there. Was there an insight that that creative idea was based on? You know, did Saatchi come to you with a, an interesting insight that they'd identified? Well, this this is the, the sort of the bit that surprises many people, which is that we in the end, we kind of had a, a one-word insight or a one-word platform that, again, was enduring. So the strategic platform remained the same. We, we are fixers, and that's what really defines our reason to be and how staff need to show up. And, you know, when people say they're on it, you kind of you just kind of know they're going to get something done. And we said, you know, that's really the spirit of the brand, but ultimately we're fixers. Uh, and that carries through into the the, the current campaign as well. Uh, and. And it's one of those ones, you know, I think Winston Churchill said, I'd have written you a shorter letter if I had more time. Back in the day in 2013, it took us a year, really, to get everything so distilled down that we had the confidence in our analysis and our thinking that we could really write a one-word brief as a trigger for the creative process. Now, of course, you know, we, we had a lot more than that. We had all the personas and all the blah, blah, blah. But ultimately, the platform of being fixers made it really inescapable for everybody what sort of advertising we wanted to have yeah absolutely and so um so yeah how, how did you know the situation of the pandemic how did that affect the kind of rollout the delivery of the campaign yeah well you know uh um i think we were lucky and landed jam side up in that we launched literally four weeks before the uk lockdown and if you remember back i mean that might seem like that was a bit of a racy decision but back then I think we were all still in denial about how quickly it was going to come here, how quickly and severely we were going to lock down. And I remember the day that we left the offices, which was actually one week before the, the full UK lockdown, I stood up in front of the whole team and said, you know, now's the time to get your stuff uh, and go home. And this is a two week pilot that we're talking about, uh, but we may not see each other for a couple of months. And everybody looked at me like I was an absolute idiot because you're like, what's this what's this guy talking about? A couple of months? No, 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 we're going home for a couple of weeks. And here we are 18 months later, you know, it's, it seems, well, not quite, but it will be probably by the time we get back in. Um, so huge disturbance, but but four weeks prior to lockdown, we went live uh, in a big bang way and we were committed and therefore we had to do a lot of modification along the way, but we were live. And that's, that's why I say we're lucky because if it had happened four weeks earlier or if our launch date had been four weeks later, who, who knows, frankly, who knows where we'd have been because this wasn't a production that we could have done virtually or it would have taken a long time. The world took a long time to get back into production. So who knows where we would have been? But but yeah, I mean, tremendous uh, amount of effort to reorientate. I mean, at, at the most basic level, the, the media planning, uh, the you know, outdoor was shut down, cinema was gone. Um, how do we reorientate ourselves? Because we were in the build phase of trying to reach our reach and frequency targets and we, we, we couldn't really turn back. And, and, and also some, some slightly unfortunate things. So we'd done some brilliant internal communication. I've never heard anything like this before we did this, where we did it outside our buildings. So it was in the, uh, the media space around our offices as people came into the building, reminding them pretty bluntly that they are the real superheroes. It was beautiful work. Saw a couple of weeks 
And then we switched it all off because nobody was coming back in the offices anymore. It would have been completely lost on them. So, you know, there's a bit of a tragedy in that, uh, you know, we, we didn't get to do all the bells and whistles we wanted. Some of them came back a bit later. But but in the end, you know, thankful that we got it out of the gate, out of the blocks and got most of the creative away and, and did reach our reach of frequency targets and, and, you know, could build from that platform. And so how did you bring, because it's, it's, it's quite a cinematic campaign. You've got, yeah, like Robocop and Donatello from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Bumblebee from Transformers. It's, it's uh, about as big and glossy, I think, as a campaign gets. How did you bring that into digital channels, places like social, even PPC? I mean, I think it was pretty straightforward to be able to take that concept through and we, we couldn't use all of the visual imagery everywhere, but if I think about some of the outdoor stuff that we did manage to do in the end, you know, I mean, they are they are instantly recognisable characters. And when I think about System 1 and System 2 and all the learnings that, that um, System 1 specifically talk about, about character, incident and place, you know, character is so crucial in advertising. You know, we've got Churchill as a brand which leverages a, a, a British bulldog. Um, you know, Winston Wolfe was a, an archetypal gangster character Robocop, Donatello, Donatello, um, and Bumblebee are characters. I think that it, characters gives give advertising a way in, and I would say I'm a big fan of character based advertising. I have to note that I worked on M and M's back in the day, um, that I was involved in, pretty heavily involved in one one eight one one eight. I wasn't there at the very beginning, but was sort of um, holding the reins of the advertising for one one eight one one eight for a couple of years. And you know, there's just something about the way our brains work that we have greater acceptance and memorability as associated with uh, with characters. Hello, a quick reminder from me that if you're enjoying our podcast series, why not become a member of the DMI so that you can enjoy loads more content from webinars and case studies to toolkits and more real-life insights from the world of digital marketing. Head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com forward slash ahead of the game to sign up for free. Now back to the podcast. Okay, so it was successful, but how do you measure success with a campaign like that? What sort of metrics are you looking at? Yeah, so, um, I mean, how many people have seen our ad and how many times? So is it actually reaching people? So is it driving awareness? That's the the start point. Um, you know, how many people are contacting us via social? Is it getting, uh, getting pick-up? Are we getting uh, earned media, as in people just forwarding it on for themselves? Um, and, and are people contacting us with interest in our products? So those are... The sort of the obvious lead indicators. I would also say that, of course, we we do pre-test our advertising, um, so we we don't go in blind. So there's a there's a lead uh, a lead time process uh, within which we do robust pre-testing. But but I suppose the real crunch comes in terms of is it is it driving sales and is it driving the long term brand tracking measures? Uh, so it's a very um, I would say comprehensive suite of metrics, and. I'm very fortunate that we've got some great people in direct line, and I'll, I'll probably call out Carl Bratton as one in terms of the marketing effectiveness suite that we've got, so that we 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 track and measure pretty comprehensively. I I, I fell into marketing back in the day. I graduated doing economics. I'm much more data rational and and much more science than art, uh, and therefore have always felt it's really important to be hot on the numbers. And I think also that's how marketing can get credibility or maintain credibility with with boards and execs and so on. Um, so yeah, we have a whole a whole bunch of measures, but but we would know if it was a dud before we ever got there. 
it's uh, it's the pre-work, which means that we're not guessing and don't have the nasty surprises. Maybe some nice upside surprises, but you really don't want the downside surprises because that's, you know, that's brands and careers that are in the trash. Well, I'm interested in that uh, idea of pre-testing. I think, I think a lot of particularly digital marketers who haven't worked in above the line so much have a sense that that happens, but don't really know how. Um, tell me what you how you would pre-test a huge campaign like that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are various ways. I mean, the most obvious thing to say is that we show people the ad and measure their responses. But but there's a lot more to it than that. Sort of small sample groups or... Yeah, I mean, actually reasonably big. And this is, of course, the thing that, you know, actually t- testing has not been impacted by the the pandemic because a lot of testing was now moving to online anyway. But but the thing to say about pre-testing adverts, it's, it's as you can imagine, it's, you know, how do, how do people answer a questionnaire and so on. But the other key bit that was probably emerged in the last five or 10 years is the use of implicit techniques. Uh, and this is... Uh, back to the system one thing this is how how does the brain respond almost subconsciously to advertising and it's uh, the way that implicit works is it's the speed of response to a stimulus that determines how uh, strongly the message is being established in the customer's brain uh, and so um, we use a company uh, a methodology called luma uh, and that allows us to benchmark against those metrics against the top 10 most successful and high-performing, 10%, sorry, of high-performing ads globally, which is a pretty high bar, but that's our benchmark. And ultimately, we we probably wouldn't launch anything unless it was clear on most of the key metrics versus that 10% benchmark. But it's this is, again, is the science. Uh, you know, Not to say that marketing is in any way painting by numbers, but the science and professionalization of the function has is is really there for all to see. The bit that's lagged, we may come back to it, is you know, marketing as a function per se still is a bit light on qualifications and still in itself, you know, people can fall into it. Uh, and I think actually we're still on the journey to really professionalise the function. Yes. And just to pick up on uh, your mention of system one and two there, you're referring to um, the idea popularised in a book by Daniel Kahneman, uh, thinking fast and slow, which is a great read, by the way, for any marketers or anyone interested in psychology and how the brain works. Basically, his um, model divides the mind's processes into two systems. System one, which is the brain's fast, automatic, intuitive approach. And system two, which is our more analytical side, where we really think about things uh, very deliberately, we reason things and work them out, right? Exactly, exactly that. Yeah, I, I mean, with hindsight, I would have loved to have done a psychology degree, uh, um, because I think that's you know, marketing is a lot about what makes people tick, what makes consumers tick, and then also what makes people tick to deliver what consumers actually want. If you take my meaning, um, but uh, yeah, so. So ultimately, our brains are pretty, obviously, you know, we've been going a while, uh, pretty sophisticated. And wherever possible, we will make decisions autonomously without really thinking about them. You don't think about tying your shoelaces. And that's very efficient. And it saves space and energy and prevents overheating for the system two stuff, which is where you have to think a bit more deeply and make really conscious decisions. The the, the knotty, noodly, not obvious things, not autonomous things. Apparently, I don't know if this is exactly right. System two thinking requires 
eight times more energy or produces eight times more heat. So if we had to think about everything that we actually did, our brains would literally cook. So it's an efficient way of decision making. And the reality is that many of our brand choices are somewhat autonomous, uh, stored memory structures that make us more amenable. And I always have the, you know, I wouldn't say it's an argument, it sounds a bit dramatic, but an argument with my mother who says, uh, you know, well, I, I, you know what, what, what really do you do in your career? Because nobody pays any attention to those adverts, do they? And then I say, well, you know, well, why did you buy that? I, I don't know. I don't know. It wasn't because of advertising. Well, well why then? And then you, when you actually tra- trace back, of course it's advertising, because otherwise you wouldn't have been aware of it or sought it or been willing to pay a premium for it, maybe. So I think yeah, understanding the way the brain's work, brain works is important and recognising that a lot of brand choice is actually autonomous and subconscious. Indeed. And that's why, it, you know, that's why above the line and TV advertising will remain important because it's about being present in the cultural landscape and and present with a certain message or brand personality or brand identity right so that you know people feel something about your company uh, as well as know something about your company I suppose um, and yeah I could talk to you all day about that because I'm also you know, definitely an armchair <laughs> psychologist I think a lot of marketers are I think I think that's just one of the things that attracts a lot of us to the career is it's it's interesting trying to make people think, feel, and do certain things with messaging, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I was I only fell into marketing, which is why one of the reasons why I say I think it should be professionalised and people should know more about it and plan better. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, marketing done well can change people's decisions it can also change their lives it can change the fortunes of a business and um, but i'm just going to leap on something you said there think feel do i'm a massive advocate as, of that as the really piercing brief for any piece of communication and by any piece of communication i mean when i'm going into a meeting what do i want people to think feel do when i'm doing a presentation what do i want people to think feel do and also in my communication and it's a really simple and accessible way just to get to the nuts and bolts of what it is you're actually trying to achieve in any given moment. Um, I'm not saying you necessarily need to do it before every conversation with your wife, husband or significant other, but short of that, it's really, really powerful. And I don't hear people talk about it very much, but I am a big fan of the really simple think, feel, do. Same here. I think, yeah, absolutely. Every every campaign you should be filling that out as a three part, you know, form or whatever, you know, in your head at least. Um, okay, so uh in just and just thinking about the rollout of this campaign, did you utilize any new platforms, any new technology, uh new trends at the time when rolling that campaign out, particularly digitally? Well to some extent, uh as I mentioned, some of our best laid plans were somewhat scuppered by the the world turning on its head. Uh, I mean, in some ways, I've already said it, but that one of the more interesting, innovative things we we did was to externalise our internal comms. Um, But some of the more clever outdoor ideas we had were were scuppered. We did do a mega TV exercise. So there were a number of TV firsts. But the reality is, you know, we were in scramble mode um, right from the get-go to make sure that we... Well, maintain the trajectory, but also maintain the confidence in the campaign when one of the first questions that came up with the pandemic at an exec level was, is this a time to be advertising? So this is where really we put a lot of our focus in doing reassurance, reminding uh, and building confidence that 
no, this is this is not a time to throttle back. This is absolutely a time when we need to keep going. And I think those advertisers that almost stuck to the knitting through the early days of the pandemic were rewarded. Don't get me wrong, some sectors it was just not a thing because, you know, the travel sector just literally stopped. But at the margin, I think those advertisers that held firm are the ones that have had a, a better pandemic, if you like. Yeah. Um, and you, you did mention something about uh, employee marketing, employee communications. And I think that's something that you've done. Uh, we, we'd spoke about it before this um, a little bit, I think. Um, talk to me about that because that's that's quite an interesting idea because I've seen it so often where external communication is great and the employees just aren't bought into it. So you obviously tried to really kind of uh, address that and do something about that. Tell me, tell me a little about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, it's interesting because at Mars, I spent ten years at Mars. We didn't do a whole lot of that because there were so many brands in the stable that you couldn't. If you if you got employees revved up about every single brand repositioning or new campaign, then you know, nobody get the day job done. But but in our case, we. We, you know, we do have a stable, a relatively small stable of brands, and Direct Line really is the hero brand. It's the name above the door, and it's the spiritual sort of DNA of the company. Uh, and so, in two thousand and fourteen, we did some really interesting things. I think we got people to dress up as Winston Wolf in and had black tie parties and stand in silhouettes like you were putting your arm around uh, Harvey Keitel and uh, and so on, and and had him record a message to our staff, which was quite cool. Now. Um, all of that we learnt really got people engaged, uh, and so when people were serving our customers, it just meant that extra little bit of pride or discretionary uh, effort or push to action. Uh, and so we wanted to recreate that with the change in the campaign. We didn't want to lose that that engagement, that bond. Uh, and so yeah, again, in this case, it was a slightly different approach, but it was to say that you know it's not they're not the superheroes; it's you are the superheroes which was the mirror to the consumer advertising, which was saying, as a brand, we are better than those superheroes. So there was a, a very obvious congruence. But literally, as you stepped over the the the, the door front into the building, uh, uh, you know, over the threshold, it was there on the floor and in the windows and, and all that. So you could be reminded of what it is we were trying to do. Um, and I think I think that stuff is is value. It's, you know, it's un- understood and valued that we, you know, even that we're bothering to care about what our staff think about our advertising. I think it, it you know it's sort of what holds it all together in fact. Well, the 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 customer experience is what people hear when they pick up the phone or what they get back in an email or a web chat message from your staff. So that if those staff do have pride and they're um you know feel like they're doing something important, that will come through in the in the customer experience. So it seems like, you know, investment well spent. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, there's a small question about appropriateness. So, you know, using a gangster in your advertising, is that appropriate? And we were very happy with that. Obviously, we had the notion of superheroes. You know, it was our, it was our health workers who had been called superheroes. And so, you know, we had a few questions on the internal um, communication mechanisms, feedback systems. You know, should we be talking about superheroes? When isn't it the nurses and my wife's a nurse and nurses and doctors and, and so on who are, who are the real superheroes? But I think this is where, you know, our advertising was based on hyperbole. So we could be a little bit relaxed about that sort of thing. I mean, it's very obvious that Bumblebee, you know, us getting to a broken down car quicker than Bumblebee is, Bumblebee is in no way a reference to how the NHS is dealing with this pandemic. Yeah, it's detached from reality, isn't it? Yeah, I, and, you know, and I think, again, 
think about 118118 118 advertising, M&M's advertising, Churchill advertising, you know, something a bit abstract. I mean, there's a lot of rubbish advertising, which is just dull. And I mean, you'd be surprised at the benchmarks for this pre-testing we do. You think, well, God, if we're in the top 10%, I mean, we're really good. If I look at the top 20%, some of those scores don't look that amazing. So my goodness, what's the bottom 80% doing? And of course, that's a lot of the dross that we see um, all too often. Where I think a lot of people are making the mistake of marketing to system two and, um, you know, in, in that they are just saying what it is and how much it costs rather than why you should care and trying to, uh, you know, market to people's hearts as you as you do rather than just marketing to their kind of heads, you know? Yeah. You know, and in fairness, it, it may be that that's appropriate and that is, you know, direct response advertising, performance marketing advertising can be more literal, um, you know, and focus more on price. And, and it's not it's not wrong. I suppose it's really all, all about your your ambition. And, and we set out a few years ago that we want our brands to be in that cadre of UK super brands. And that's so that's a higher bar. And that's about, uh, you know, leave, leaving a, a, a bigger impression in any given marketplace uh, and therefore it sets a different standard in terms of you know the nuts and bolts of re- true brand building building for the future and it's you know it's a cliche now but it happens to be true that the 60 40 rule we absolutely subscribe to and believe that you know the long term impact of brand building will serve us well but also will benefit short term performance marketing and cost of acquisition so i think it's you know and, and many cmos don't get an opportunity to play a long game either because of tenure or because their context and standing in an organisation means that they don't really get get to break out of that straitjacket. It's hard, though, isn't it, with insurance? Because, I mean, it's it, I've heard it called a grudge buy because it's a necessary product. So it's one that you kind of you just have to insure your car. But also differentiating between other providers is so hard because ultimately it's just car. I mean, it's car insurance. It's quite a commoditized thing. So it. It's it's a it's a, it's a real challenge. How do you specifically overcome those challenges of that sector? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, uh, every market has its dominant characteristics. For us, price is very important, uh, and that's somewhat because it's a bit of an invisible purchase. You, as you say, a bit of a grudge. You don't, you know, you, you don't want to have to use it. I mean, you might need to have it, but you, you certainly don't want to have to use it because that means something's gone wrong in in your life. And you're not on price comparison websites, is that right? No, no, we're not. And 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 so, and the advent of price comparison themselves, price comparison sites themselves, did has pushed the market towards price being the discriminating factor. But but here's the thing, as people uh, or many people understand that life can be disturbed, uh, and maybe have had, you know, as they get older, more experiences where things have gone wrong, or or had a bad experience with an insurer. And it's a little bit of a case that people, you know, come to realise you get what you pay for. And that's true of insurance of other sectors. And and there is a reality, which is that cheap doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be helpful. And it might even be hindering in your true moment of need. And so the 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 good news is that many people understand that you you, you get what you pay for. And therefore, it's, it's, it's almost a sort of an attitudinal segmentation uh, divide between those who really don't think about anything else other than the cheapest because they don't see a consequence of that and those who get it uh, and obviously there's a bit of blurring in the middle but but for us uh you know thankfully there's still many people who believe it's important to have good insurance proper insurance 
And this is where the role for differentiation comes in because through some of the propositions that we do, we can demonstrate that we offer actually really great value for money because, well, partly because we're not paying for the commissions on the price comparison website, although we wouldn't sort of talk about that as a consumer message. But that means we can invest in the, the propositions that we have to, to give a better service when customers really, truly need it. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because I think about, you know, it, it comes up a lot, the idea that, you know, that idea that Simon Sinek popularized the golden circle of, you know, why in the middle, like start with why rather than someday hope to get to a why. Um, so he talks about the fact that, you know, every business on the planet can tell you what they do, but very few can tell you why. And people don't really buy what you do. They buy why you do it. You know, that's his whole thing, right? He's built his career on that, become very successful. Um, part of me struggles with it because I think it suggests a bit like what you're saying, attitudinal segmentation. It, is there a section of the population that brand marketing will never work on? Well, good question. I think yes and no. So for, in, in any given sector, there's definitely a chunk of people who are uh, you know, reluctant buyers or um, just don't care. But probably not across all sectors. And so it's probably quite sectorally specific. You know, I, I, I remember actually having the conversation joining Direct Line many years ago. And somebody said, you know, I, to be honest, I don't really know why we have all these brands. You know, price comparison website is where it's at. And as long as we can price brilliantly, we'll have a successful future. And I remember saying, you know, well, what, what, what shoes do you wear? What, what car do you buy? Um, car do you drive? And uh, you know they obviously were into brands, and I was saying, well, what, what, why don't you, why don't you believe that brand is relevant to insurance? Because of course the thing is that they had never purchased insurance themselves, other than through their own company, so they weren't really connected with the process that customers go through. So you know the whole customer centricity thing. But yeah, of course, of course, brands are, are going to be relevant. And I think in general there are people who are sort of more into brands than other than not. But I do think it's very sectorally specific. And therefore, those who, who who really don't care about some things will, will care a lot about others, um, you know, depending upon what, what where they're at in their lives. And so therefore, do you have a kind of a marketing output that's targeted at people who only care about price? Well, this is where you're going a little bit into brand portfolio strategy. So we have a number of other brands. So, for example, take Privilege Brand. You know, that was at one point in time, you know, a headlining, advertised, above the line brand. Uh, Joanna Lumley, Ian Wright, other celebs, and um, and just to be clear, these are totally separate brands that are within your group, and to the consumer are are separate insurance brands. Yeah, absolutely, um, and they have you know lots of points of difference in their the, the, the proposition. Truth be known, under the hood, some of them operate on similar systems and maybe have similar you know um, tools and processes running underneath, and even within the marketing team, some people who work across brands. But ultimately, you know, if you think about the fact that there are different needs, then our brand portfolio is is really there just to help us in a little in a way have more bites of the cherry or reach a, a broader range of customer needs. And so privilege is um is very much focused around being uh, there for the those who are much more focused around around price. And and it stands to reason, I mean it's um it's no probably no big expose in the world today that if I think back to pet care, you know, we had Caesar pedigree Chappy, pal, you know, you had four or five brands that hit different price points. And that's very obviously a thing in supermarket shelves where going left to right, it probably goes cheaper. But that's also true in price comparison websites and in general, 
that you have people who just have different affordability levels. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That I think, um, I mean, potentially any business can can sort of employ a, a portfolio, a brand portfolio strategy to do that, um, because I do think you have to recognise that people think in different ways, people care about different things, um, and it is important to segment attitudinally as you talk about. It's interesting. Uh, it's not just for big brands, I think potentially. Yeah, I, I mean, there is a bit of a. There is a bit of a I think you're spot on. You know, it's appreciating the different needs in the market. Uh, you know, and therefore finding a way to meet a broader set of needs is, is sort of a fundamental. But the, but the rub is, it obviously takes a lot of money to launch launch a brand and to maintain a brand. And so some of our competitors, and Aviva, for example, are much more into a single brand approach. And you know, to be honest, I think there's pros and cons. You know, one one eight, one one eight. We didn't spin up a bunch of brands because we had that hero brand really motoring. Um, but it's, so it's very contextually driven for us. It was actually by acquisition, what, long before I joined, that we had this stable of brands. But I'm really glad that we do because it's given us much more optionality for for now and into the future. Yeah. Um, okay, that's it's fascinating talking to you about this stuff. Actually, I could talk to you a lot longer, but I know our time is running short. I suppose I'd love to. Just for the for our listeners who are trying to establish a brand, particularly digitally, you know, most of our listeners are digital marketers. So what would be, if you had, if you had to distill your entire career into two minutes of advice, uh, what would be your advice, your key pieces of advice for someone trying to establish a brand in digital today? Well, okay, so there are the unicorns. There are the dollar shave clubs who go exclusively digital and bring build digitally only brands. But this is the thing in life, isn't it? You only hear about the successful ones. You don't hear about the tens of thousands of unsuccessful ones. So I, I, I'm pretty much saying that if you want to, even if it's a digital only brand, you look at Google, Peloton, Apple, Microsoft, at some point in time to build a mega brand, TV does play a role. And I think even Dollar Shave Club, uh, Michael Dubin, did move into TV advertising at some point in time. So I, I, I think the, the, big, the big rule of thumb is the 60-40 which is however you define your brand advertising versus your performance advertising is to have in mind that you do need to build a brand footprint. You do need to invest in messaging, which is beyond that immediate purchase cycle. Uh, and I think it was something that was always ex- instinctively there back in the day when I was at Mars, we used to say, you, you know, you'd get two sales for every sale for every sale that was driven by advertising this year into subsequent years. Um, but now, of course, Lesbinet and Peterfield have done some brilliant work, which puts some more science around that. And they've even got what should that balance be at a sector level. And, and so I think, you know, there is the, the playbooks are there. And if you want a long, enduring brand that you can say has a bit of legacy, if you don't want that, then fine. But if you do, that would be my biggest rule of thumb. And it's not, it's not a new thought, but uh, I suppose I'm just putting myself in an endorser place for the work of... Uh, and field and you're talking about 60 percent of your what resource and your budget put into long-term brand building yeah exactly that so for us you know when we have bumblebee charging around the countryside you know we don't try and append a, a, a product specific message i mean we can sort of nominally say well this is perhaps nodding to motor insurance but we're really uh you know we're really building the brand more than a, expecting a direct response to that advertising so that's that's the so yes it's money putting 60% of the money into the outer years 
impact. It's good advice. I mean, it's good advice for digital marketers because digital marketing can push you into short-termism. It can feel like, oh, great, Google PPC, social PPC. I can drive sales today. And then people can neglect long-term content marketing, long-term social media community building, long-term brand marketing. And as soon as you switch that PPC tap off, you're totally invisible again. Um, and uh, so a watch out, definitely. I, mean, I, I remember just a final point on that. I think EasyJet and a few others have said we, we you know, we, we switched off paid search. I think Airbnb was the most recent, switched off paid search and didn't see any impact. Well, great. I'm really happy for you, but basically you are synonymous with your sector. Uh, and, and so you're going to get all, all that organic traffic nonetheless. Within motor insurance, I can tell you, if we switched off Google search, then, oh, my word, I wouldn't be around long. Um, because there, there's no doubt that in very, very heavily competed markets, you can't, you can't afford to not harvest that traffic. And there's a, there's a whole science and industry around that, of course. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it's the balance of these things. And when I'm saying 60-40, I'm not saying 100-0. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm saying 60-40. Well, uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate that, Mark. I feel like I've learned an awful lot in the short space of time. Um, where can our listeners find you online? Oh, good uh, good opportunity for me to do a few plugs. So um, the, the, the first thing I'd say is that on a Friday morning, we do a vodcast, I suppose, a video, video show interviewing incredible people about life's journey, um, not necessarily marketers, but those who have achieved amazing things, but struggle along the way and how have they adapted and been resilient. So uh, we've had, you know, we've got Matthew Side come out, we've got Sir, Sir Steve Redgrave, um, Martin Sorrell, uh, Paul Polman, loads of great people. Uh, so Friday morning, 8am UK time, but you can also check it out on my LinkedIn. And we've, we've just had our 40th show. So as I speak now, interviewed Steve Hatch this morning, the VP for Northern Europe for Facebook. Um, so, so that's, that's one thing. And the other, the other final plug I make is, uh, if this is going out before September, which I'm sure it will, is for the marketing industry, we've got a big, I've got a big charity event with the Marketing Society and Stand Up to Cancer at Battersea Park, uh, raising money to beat cancer faster. It's a sprint-a-thon, which is 422 people sprinting 100 metres to break a two-hour marathon. It's been going about five or six years, raised over half a million quid. And if anybody's interested, just, just contact me because it's a great opportunity for businesses to have a lap team, four people running 100 metres, um, to be part of that effectively uh, mega uh, sprint relay. Um, and have a great day out and do something um, good in the world as well. So those those are a couple of ways to to um, to connect. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's great. Thanks, Mark. Well, thanks so much for your time and your insight. It's been very, very useful. And um, yeah, thanks very much. My pleasure, Will. Great to be here. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.